There is one advantage of being up the front. Daniel chapter 4. Um, chapter 2, Yahweh reveals. Chapter 3, Yahweh saves. Chapter 4, Yahweh... I'll leave you to work it out. It's also significant that each chapter is dominated by something large. There's a colossal statue, a massive statue, and an enormous tree. But Yahweh is bigger. And here, in this chapter, he is mostly called the Most High. Hopefully we'll see why. Firstly, though, we notice that the Most High does not tolerate rivals. Nebuchadnezzar was a great monarch, both good and bad. 4.22, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. 4.30, is not this Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? 4.36, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor return to me. My counsellors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. He's not lying. He was a colossus. To quote John Lennox, Nebuchadnezzar was a big man in charge of a huge empire whose capital city was a wonder of the ancient world. A city originally engineered to reflect human achievement, symbolised in its famous ziggurat, with whose top pierced the heavens. Unquote. Or again, beyond the gardens, Babylon was full of architectural and artistic expressions of Nebuchadnezzar's aesthetic imagination. He had made it a truly glorious city. Everywhere you read in the secular literature and here, Nebuchadnezzar was a great monarch. He was a gifted and impressive ruler. He was also cruel and despotic, warrior. But he came badly unstuck. What's the problem? Daniel nails three things. Uh, there's two of them in verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be an extension of your prosperity. He did not practice righteousness. He behaved wrongly, badly. He thought wrongly, badly. And connected with that, in the second place, he was cruel and indifferent to the people his armies had conquered. He was a tyrant, showed no mercy to conquered people. But the third fault is the main one and the source or the, the grounds of why he became so badly unstuck. Verse 30. 
Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? It's not hyperbole. But compare that with this. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the Lord, whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all. The I didn't think that was that impressive. It's okay. The Most High is the source of his greatness, his glory and governance. The Most High is the source of his greatness, his glory, and his governance. It is Yahweh who gave him the throne. He is king by the Most High's will. The Lord's power has enabled him to achieve his greatness. His extraordinary gifts come from his creator. And he doesn't acknowledge it. Instead, he arrogates to himself the glory and the honour, the fame, the creativity, the wealth, the prestige, the might, the power, to himself. He refuses to recognise and submit to the God of the universe who owns it all and who gave him everything that he has. He takes the glory and the fame which belongs to Yahweh alone and gives it to himself. Nebuchadnezzar is guilty of hubris, or what we once called arrogance, pride, or superiority. And it's serious. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is a hatred of pride. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. You see, the most high rules. He does not share his glory with anyone. Isaiah 48.11 Nebuchadnezzar eventually came to recognise it. In verse 437, he says, And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Isaiah 2.12, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Nebuchadnezzar 
is in the hands of the Almighty, he can take him down. God does not tolerate rivals. Why does he hate it so much, though? Why does he hate pride so much? It's a direct denial and rejection of who the Lord is and who human beings are. You would have noticed that the title used most often in this chapter is the Most High. That says it all. He is above all. He is the highest. In contrast, human beings are dependent, fallen creatures. We are dependent upon him for our very breath, Job 34. We are dependent on the creator for our existence and our giftedness, Acts 17.25. All we are and have comes from him, 1 Corinthians 4.7. If we ask the question, do you have anything that is not given by God, including your salvation? The answer is no. And Paul's point and um, Daniel's point is, why then do we boast as if we obtained it all and are responsible for it all? This hubris is the denial of the supremacy of the Most High. Denial of our creaturehood and denial of our fallenness. And the great problem for us is that pride is the default position for everyone. It's the reason for terrible decisions like invading a vulnerable country. It lies behind much marital conflict and other interpersonal conflict. It's the source of ingratitude and negative criticism. It gives rise to jealousy and rivalry and self-promotion, which was Nebuchadnezzar's great issue. But above all, it lies behind rejecting the living God and his law. It is why people refuse to bow to Jesus and find hope and life in him. I'm okay as I am. I can do it. I don't need salvation. Pride is pernicious. One commentator said, For we are all a bunch of Nebuchadnezzar clones, wanting to call our own shots, to direct our own show, puny as it is, and seldom, except in rare moments of sanity, Stopping to consider how asinine our passion for self-deification really is. You can see the reason for this exhortation from the Apostle Peter. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your cares, anxieties on him because he cares for you. Pray that leaders in our world and in our churches will recognise that God has given them that position and therefore take great care what they do with it. 
Yahweh rules, not Vladimir Putin or Joe Biden. And let us be sure that the Most High does not tolerate rivals. Second is that mercy marks the Most High. We need to see, first of all, that his mercy is a severe mercy. Um, as um, you heard, for an extended time, Nebuchadnezzar lived like an animal, stripped of his powers of reason. He experiences a real sound so ridiculous. He experiences humiliation of the greatest degree. When you consider what he was and the position that he occupied, from the height of fame and power and prestige and pleasure and wealth and adoration by people to the insignificant of an animal walking around eating grass and he had lost his reason. That great mind, which was the architect behind the city of Babylon, that great mind, which was behind the um, amazing military campaigns, gone. The insignificance of an animal existence, unrecognised, powerless, devoid of thinking, devoid of reason, because he thought he was Yahweh's equal. Nebuchadnezzar's descent into the darkness illustrates an important principle. This is what Paul says in Romans 1.21. For though they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. Sounds like Nebuchadnezzar. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and animals and birds and creeping things. Giving thanks to God indicates his supremacy and dependence upon him. But human beings like Nebuchadnezzar refuse to acknowledge him and refuse to give him thanks. They're saying we're not dependent upon him. We can be our own gods. We have no masters. And notice what God does in 128. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The penalty is a distorted, debased way of thinking which leads to uh, sinful behaviour. Human reason, to some degree, especially when it comes to, or particularly when it comes to God, has been so distorted that we don't thank, we don't worship the one from whom, for whom, from whom we owe everything, and instead we celebrate ourselves and our brilliance and everything else. People who do not know God consider the Bible and belief in God as irrational. But many of the arguments against Christianity are irrational. Sin is irrational. 
Many people persist in arguing that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, um, that the Bible is full of errors. Arguments which have been for long years shown to be spurious. Sin is irrational. Christianity isn't irrational. And Isaiah 14 describes the demise of the king of Babylon. Um, and I've shortened it a little bit. To Sheol, your eminence has been brought down. And you, you are the one who said in your heart, to heaven itself I will go up. Above the stars of God I will make my throne high. I will make myself like the most high. To the contrary. To Sheol you are brought down. To the nadir of the pit. That's the result of Babylon's king's attempt to assert God's glory and rule. But why such a severe mercy? I'll leave you to answer that. Because we go on to see that it is a severe mercy. Yahweh reveals the truth to him, to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream. He provides him with an accurate and godly interpreter in Daniel. He gifts Nebuchadnezzar with a warning and an encouragement to turn around in verse 27. Yahweh restores his sanity. The Lord elevates him to greatness once again. The Lord brooks no rival. He does deal with human pride and hubris. He will not let created beings take his place. There is a day coming when the books will be opened and human hubris will be judged. But on the other side, the Most High has demonstrated mercy in spades to those who seek him and bow to his supremacy. He sent his beloved son into the world to bear the sin of the world and take away the wrath for all who will humble themselves and acknowledge him as king, as lord, as supreme. He will show mercy and kindness to all who submit to him, the true ruler. It is irrational to spurn that, to turn away from it, to reject it. Maybe that's why it's a severe mercy. Thirdly, the Most High occupies the supreme place in the universe. Um, biblical writers use, in narrative, use various strategies to make a point. And here Daniel uses repetition to emphasise the purpose for Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation. I won't read all of them, but there's a, a list there. I'll just read the relevant bits. 4.17, so that you may know the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. 4.25, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom and gives it to whom he will. 4.32, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. 
And then speaking of his eventual restoration, Nebuchadnezzar says in verse, in verse 26, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Yahweh ordains Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation so that he and we get the point. The Most High rules the universe. He decides who will have the rule. He possesses both the right and the power to do it. He possesses the wisdom and the goodness to be good at it. Not simply in Israel, but Babylon. Not only over his own people, but non-believers as well. Not simply in the religious sphere, but the national and international sphere as well. He does what he does to bend Nebuchadnezzar's mind and heart to recognise the living God as the originator of his reign, as the source of his achievement, the disposer of his future, to show that the Lord alone is sovereign. And we are presented with the, uh, a few things about the nature of Yahweh's supremacy. It's a present tangible supremacy. Yes, the kingdom, we know the kingdom is, is in its fullness has not yet come and it's still coming. But that doesn't mean Yahweh isn't ruling now. He rules up there. He rules down here. He rules everywhere. It mightn't be evident and often isn't, but it's true. And we know it because of Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter. Whole earth, including all its petty rulers and not so petty rulers, are subject to the present active rule of the Most High. His rule is earthly, it's present, it's tangible now. His rule is personal and free. He doesn't only rule kingdoms, he rules leaders, not only nations, but individuals, not only the general course of a nation, but nations' leaders. And he exercises his free decisions to who gets the Guernsey. He exercises free decision as to whom he appoints. He chooses and appoints according to his good pleasure. It's also a strange sovereignty. You notice verse 17. He gives the rule to the lowliest of people. This isn't referring to moral deviance to wicked men and women it's referring to status, low in rank in human terms. And I find it fascinating. He, the Lord has a habit of turning human wisdom on its head. And none more so than the coming of the Lord Jesus. He didn't send a mighty monarch. He sent a humble, lowly man. How fascinating his sovereignty is at times. And his authority is exclusive. This was a religious age. Nebuchadnezzar, as you would see just from the reading, believed in many gods and Daniel was named after one of his gods. And he believed, that's Nebuchadnezzar, he ruled, he ruled because the gods he worshipped were with him and gave him success. And no doubt he had to 
expend an awful lot of animals and an awful lot of gold to make sure he kept them on side. And the Lord here shows him how impotent and helpless and silent and useless and dumb they are. He rules, not them. And the removal of his reason reveals that there is only one God who exercises his sovereignty over the world. Of course, this raises the question, probably is already going through your mind, how does this work? Um, we don't have time. Uh, I'm happy for you to tackle me afterwards. It's enough to say that God is sovereign and human beings are fully responsible. God is sovereign over everything, including evil, but he's not responsible for evil. His sovereignty embraces evil, but he's never responsible for it. Human beings are completely responsible for their actions and their evil actions. But they are never outside God's all-embracing sovereignty. When you work all that out, just let me know. What are the implications for us, though? God gives the leadership of our country and others to whom he will. But that doesn't mean he approves the evil and the, all the policies of those who win. Sovereignty is not an endorsement of evil rulers, just as it was an endorsement of Nebuchadnezzar's evil. So never place your confidence in human rulers. You can be sure they will let you down. And you can be sure that they won't deliver what everyone hopes. Trust in the supremacy of God. There's the question of the supremacy of God in our marriages, our work, our leisure, the local congregation. Is it a belief in his supremacy or is it just words? Acknowledge him. Bow to his sovereignty today. Better that than his severity. And finally, submission to the Most High is revealed by faith, adoration and obedience. Verses 1 to 3 form Nebuchadnezzar's conclusion or his um, thinking after he's been through all this. The Psalms do that a lot. And he says, Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And at the end he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. He praises the king of heaven now he doesn't praise Nebuchadnezzar. 
He talks the Lord up. He extols him. He speaks highly of him. He honours him. He acknowledges him as the giver of all that he has. He thanks him and elevates him by obedience and faith. He acknowledges his sovereignty. He acknowledges that he's the source of all he has. He recognises that the Lord's kingdom is the eternal one, not his. He acknowledges that Yahweh is right and just and good in everything he does. And he submits his allegiance to the Most High. And that, as we saw, was the purpose behind Yahweh's severe mercy. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. And know here means to submit to, to acknowledge, to obey, uh, to worship. Exclusive allegiance. Nebuchadnezzar is no longer worshipping and thanking himself, but a worshipper of the one true and living God. And it's the only proper response for a sovereign God. Walter Kaiser tells of the funeral of Louis XIV. Uh, he was known as the Sun, uh, the sun King. He had... and. Consequently, you can see he had a great ego. He had requested that at that service in the Cathedral of Notre Dame, all would be darkened except one candle on his casket at the front. But when the court preacher Massillon got up to give the funeral oration, he walked over to the casket, snuffed out the candle and began with the words, only God is great. Only God is great. Faith works itself out in life. It works itself out in adoration, praise and thanks and obedience. Paul is speaking about his call to be an apostle. And he says, Paul, a servant of Christ, set apart for the gospel of God to bring about the obedience of faith, the obedience of faith. Faith means bringing everything, thoughts, words, actions, into submission to Jesus the King. Trusting the true Lord of all means adoration, praise, thankfulness and obedience. You see, he is supreme. He will not abide rivals, not because he's a megalomaniac full of hubris, but because there's no one like him. All other gods are pale, pathetic imitations and false. He is supreme in the world over individual leaders who are there because Yahweh wills it. And one day they'll be called to account for what they've done with it. Yahweh is the giver of all gifts. And gifted people should be thanking him for what he's given them. The kingdom does not belong to the person who believes they are the greatest. No, the kingdom belongs to the one who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross.
He is the true king. To him belongs the fame and the glory. And I plead with you today, if you haven't done so, to surrender your self-sufficiency and pride to him. Because on that response hangs your eternal destiny. Let me pray. Most merciful and gracious God, you've made it clear once again that you, the Most High, has the kingdoms of this world in your hand and you give it to whomever you will. Grant us grace to acknowledge, obey and thank you always in true humility. Grant, Lord, that since we find it so difficult to bear prosperity without distorting our thinking, we may remember that we are mortal. May our frailty be ever present to our eyes and render us humble and grateful. Grant that we may fear you reverently and be seriously cautious about ourselves. May we be frightened by your warnings and enticed by your grace and willingly submissive to you always. Grant us grace to zealously pursue happiness, happiness in you, so you become the joy of all our joys. May we know and be sustained by your grace alone. Amen.